Mark chapter 6 is our passage this morning. Mark chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 14. Mark 6, beginning to read at verse 14. We continue our study of Mark's gospel. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to us. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded John in the prison. He brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. As far as the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word and ask that you'd bless it to us. And as we hear about the persecution that was given to the church at that time through Herod, we just pray for all those throughout the world who are being persecuted for your name's sake. We have it easy here, but there are subtle ways that we might be persecuted too. And just give us the strength to hold fast to your word, we pray. And we ask your blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings this word to us that he may do that in spirit and in truth, and just bless him abundantly, we pray, and ask us in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So the passage begins in verse 14 with King Herod heard of it. Let me offer uh, very quickly, uh, before we actually get into the outline, uh, a little bit of explanation as to who we're dealing with here. Because there are four Herods that are talked to us, or 
written about in the New Testament. There's the man who is called Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the builder of the temple that is around here in this New Testament era. He is also the the Herod who the wise men, the Magi, visit and ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? He is also the Herod that comes then to Bethlehem and slaughters the infants who are two years and, and younger. And then he's also the Herod who dies approximately four years later, after which Joseph, when he hears that that Herod, Herod the Great has died, moves the family then back to Nazareth. This Herod is his son. And I'll come back to him in just a minute. This son reigns from then about 4 uh, B.C., 4 A.D., somewhere in there to 39 A.D. There is another Herod that rules uh, later on in the time in the book of Acts. Uh, He is called Herod Agrippa, uh, who ends up executing James, and then he himself, because he supposedly was a man of great eloquence, and uh, people acknowledged him as having the voice of a god, and because he did not turn away from that praise, uh, actually gets eaten by worms. He has a son who is also called Herod Agrippa, sometimes referred to as Herod Agrippa II, who Paul appears to at the end of the book of Acts. But this one, okay, is the one who is then reigning from 4 A.D. to 39 A.D., 35 years. He is uh, the son of Herod the Great, as I mentioned, who was an Edomite. He is not uh, a full-born Jew, although one could say he's sort of related to the Jews, but uh, the father is not. The mother is actually this Herod. Uh, mother is a Samaritan, which really put him on the outs with the Jews. He, he does not have a good relationship with the Jewish people uh, because of that. He uh, rules over an area of, of Galilee and another area called Perea, which is sort of down along the Jordan River Valley. He is actually referred to as a tetrarch. Uh, Sometimes the title king is given to him, as it is here in Mark 6, 14, but that's sort of the loose interpretation. It's not the official title that Rome bestows upon him. It's sort of the title he kind of thinks he is, and so people acknowledge that because... He thinks he is, but he's actually, his his official title is of that of being the Tetrarch. It is this one then, the son of Herod the Great, in his 35-year reign, who is being referred to. If these events, which we pretty much, uh, there's some pretty good historical evidence for, are taking place about 2930 A.D., Uh, He has been reigning then for approximately 26 years. He's pretty entrenched into the society. And the thing that strikes our eye then as we turn back to Mark chapter 6 is the fact that, that Herod is bewildered. King Herod heard of it, verse 14 says. What did he hear of? Well, he 
heard the news about Jesus. Later on, we were told in this passage that Herod was perplexed. He can't quite figure out what's going on. He's hearing news about this Jesus who is in his territory, Galilee. He's hearing news about healings. He's hearing news about miracles, about his teaching. Perhaps he's taking even some satisfaction in the confrontations that are going on. Thinking, hey, I, got, I got a kindred spirit here. I don't like these religious leaders either. They don't like me. I don't like them. Here's this guy going about doing all this stuff. He's not getting along well with the Jewish leaders either. But can't quite figure out who he is. Added to that are all the ideas that are out there. Some are saying this is John the Baptist, risen from the dead, as the text tells us. Others saying this is Elijah. Now, the phrase there, he is Elijah, they're not thinking of the Old Testament prophet being resurrected. They're thinking in terms of the way Malachi and the later prophets characterize Elijah as the one who is the forerunner of the Messiah. Well, that would certainly pique the interest of Herod. If this is the one who is coming, if Jesus is the one who is coming as the forerunner, as the one who comes before the great Messiah, the great Christ, the great King, what does that mean for him? What does that mean about his reign? What does that mean about his legacy? So that, of course, is of interest to Herod. Others are simply saying he's a prophet. And that's why he is able to do all of these things. So we've got all these views out there. But Herod has already reached his own conclusion. Verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, that's the second time we've heard that, isn't it? Verse 14, King Herod heard of it. Now again, but when Herod heard of it. And it would seem that that's a little bit more focus. Most commentators draw our attention back to Jesus sending out the disciples. This is something to take note of. This is not just a man, one single solitary individual, going throughout my Galilee from Herod's perspective, who is performing these signs and wonders, whose identity is somewhat mysterious, but he's got workers. There's 12 workers going out, and they, with great power, are doing miracles as well. When Herod hears, not only about Jesus, but when he hears about the disciples going out, bringing the news not only of the gospel, but doing so with miraculous powers, when Herod hears of it, Herod reaches his own conclusion. John, who I beheaded, has been raised. 
One of the things that plays into this is the fact that we know that this Herod is very superstitious. This is a guy who seems to be involved in about every religious practice that there is a possibility of. He is a religious person. We wouldn't use the term believer, but he is religious. His religion is the religion of superstition. So he's involved in all sorts of worship of different gods, including from what we've been come to understand, even in terms of some what we today would call occult-like practices. Herod's superstition leads him to believe that John, who was dead, has returned with extra power. That the one who has died has now come back to life with great superpowers. That's the way Herod's looking at this. Now, obviously, Herod is wrong. Jesus is not John the Baptist raised to life. Herod not knowing the full account, Herod not knowing the full story, Herod not knowing all that is involved in this, okay, makes the mistake of noting, well, Jesus and John are approximately the same age, he must have come back to life. Perhaps there is some other similarities that go along with this as well, but he's obviously mistaken. The Gospels make it very clear to us that Jesus and John are two distinct persons. They have two distinct pregnancies. They have two distinct mothers and a fathers, to use it loosely as far as Jesus is concerned. They grow up in different areas. They have two different ministries. They have met each other. They have been on the same spot of ground at the same time. But Herod is unknowing of all of this, and so he makes the false assumption that John is Jesus, is Jesus is John raised from the dead. But it's interesting that it's at this point that Mark then inserts what actually did happen to John. And I think it's important that he inserts it here. Because what is Matthew or what is Mark chapter 6 about? But it's about the rejection of Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, this rejection of Jesus that takes place here in Mark chapter 6 is a foreshadowing of the rejection that's going to come in Jerusalem and is going to come and meet its end at the cross. Which is going to result in a resurrection. Not of John, but of Jesus. So Mark is, as it were, is fitting this story in here, not because it fits chronologically, but it fits thematically. It fits with the theme of rejection. It fits with the theme of persecution. It fits with the theme of the fact, yes, these disciples are going to go out, and yes, they go out preaching the gospel, but they too are going to come under the persecution of those who are opposed to this message of the gospel. 
So what exactly happened here? What happened to John? Mark now clarifies the events that took place in regards to the beheading of John. And it has to do, first of all, with John's arrest. John is arrested because of the sin of Herod. And what is Herod's sin? Well, the passage talks about in verse 17 that he bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now here's where the story turns pretty ugly in the past. Herodias has two connections to Herod. One, she is the daughter of his half-brother. In other words, Herodias is his niece. Now just let that sit for just a second. Herodias is Herod's niece. Secondly, Herodias is the wife of his half-brother. She is his sister-in-law. But to confuse the matter even more, what ended up happening is this. Herod's half-brother is in Rome, living in Rome, serving in Rome with Herodias as his wife. Herod, this Herod, comes to Rome to pay a visit, spots Herodias. They have some sort of illicit affair. Herod convinces Herodias to leave his brother, come back with him, and live and marry him. Even though she has a daughter by the other half-brother. This is like as the world turns. John is forthright in condemning what Herod has done. And it all centers on Herodias. Now, I suppose there's many things that Herod has done that John could have took aim at. But this one is so blatant. This one is so wrong. He is living in a marriage relationship that is incest. This is wrong. He should not be living in a marriage relationship with his niece. Two, it is adulterous. He's living in this marriage relationship with a woman who has a husband, but she left that husband for the sole reason of being with Herod. John rightly condemns this. And it would appear as you read the text that whenever John has the opportunity to address the circumstance, to address the situation, he is. He's out preaching, proclaiming. People need to repent. You know who else needs to repent? Herod. Herod needs to repent. Our government leader needs to repent. He is involved in an adulterous, incestuous relationship. It is wrong. It is sinful. Well, that news reaches Herod. It reaches Herodias. 
Herodias starts putting the pressure on Herod. You've got to silence this guy. You can't let this guy go around Judea, Perea, Galilee, preaching that we're involved in some sort of sin, even though they are. And so we read, under that pressure, Herod put him in prison. But then we read an interesting phrase, verse 20. Herodias is pushing for the death penalty. Herod's arguing, I got him in prison. He can't do much harm there. Except he keeps talking to John. Some reason or other, he is drawn to this man, even though he's in prison. You get the feeling either Herod's going down to the dungeon once in a while to listen, or he's calling John out and saying, what, what do you got to say today? And once again, here it comes. You are sinning by being involved in this relationship. Herodias keeps pressing, you've got to put him to death. Herod keeps arguing he's doing no harm here. Herodias is thinking, yes, he is. He's getting to your head. I can see how this is going to end. You're going to get rid of me. You're going to put me out the pasture. I'm going to be gone. Who's going to want me? I've been through two Herods now. I'm going to have to go to work or something rather than living in all this luxury. She can see the wheels churning in Herod's head. The more he listens to John, the more his conscience is pricked. He fears John. Why? He's got all the power. He's got him in prison. He can order his execution. Why does he fear John? Because goodness is awful when you're evil. When you're involved in a sin, you can't stand goodness. Because that goodness just keeps reminding you of your sin. Goodness is a threat. John, even though he has no political power, is a threat. Because he speaks the truth. My guess is, Herod has been surrounded for 20-some years with a bunch of yes-men. Here's this guy who is bold enough, courageous enough to look him in the face and to tell him he's a sinner and he is doing something wrong. And for Herod, that's a curious thing. Do you realize what I can do? Of course John realizes it, but it doesn't cease him from being the faithful witness he needs to be. Herod doesn't need advice about what to do with taxes. Herod doesn't need advice about where to put soldiers. Herod doesn't need advice about what aqueduct to build. Herod doesn't need advice about what wall to construct. What Herod needs is this. You are a sinner. 
because you're living in an adulterous, incestuous relationship. You need to repent and turn to the living God and Herod fears him. My friends, no one is ever persecuted out of weakness. Persecution only comes when individuals recognize goodness and truth and strength that they cannot deal with. The passage goes on to tell us, however, that a decision is made by Herod. He gives this fancy party. There's government officials, military commanders, social elites are there. The daughter does a apparently seductive dance. The wine is flowing freely. Thoughts are racing everywhere. He makes an offer that he actually can't make. Herod can't give away half of his kingdom. It's not his to give. Okay, It's Rome's. The only one who can make this decision is Rome. But it, it's, it's just the reminder of the fact that he's not in his right mind. He's not thinking clearly. He's making statements that he can't back up. Half the kingdom. What hatred is in the heart of Herodias? What an offer. She could have her daughter taken care of for the rest of her life. Instead, she wants one thing. The head of John the Baptist. Herod realizes he's put himself in a predicament. Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths, he didn't want to break his word. And so he orders the execution of John. And then we read the gruesomeness of that which takes place. But he gives us pause here in the context then, this event that, that Mark records for us by the Spirit at this place, at this time, to give pause. As I already said, to give pause of knowing that which is going to come in the life of Jesus. But it gives us pause and reflection on that which is going to come in the life of these disciples and in the life of the church and indeed each and every one of our lives as well. To reflect for a few moments upon persecution that comes to those who are following of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Three things I, I want to note as we come to this third point then, because it really is a blessing. Persecution truly is, that's the way Jesus speaks of it. If you go back in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 5, where you have those beatitudes given to us, we read, starting in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And how can we not read those verses now in the context of Mark chapter 6? To think, Jesus was speaking of John. John is blessed, for he was persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the very next verse, Jesus ties in the fact that, that righteousness has to do with him. That you're persecuted for my sake. When we are persecuted for the cause of Christ, that's what John is doing. The cause of Christ is to go into this world and to preach the message of the gospel. Repent and turn. Repent of your sin and turn to Christ. That message of the gospel brings persecution. But Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted. And certainly we see that in the life of John. It's rather interesting that most commentators believe that Mark is uh, written or by John Mark, but it's actually dictated to him or the historical information is given to him by Peter. One who is going to do everything he could to avoid that there in the courtyard but one who, as you read through First and Second Peter, writes much about suffering for the gospel. And by the time he's writing First and Second Peter, that persecution of the church has begun. Blessed are you. And certainly we live in a day and age, do we not? In which even in the most casual of conversations... Mentioning Jesus Christ causes icy glares. Much less if you're a politician, how much more I should say, if you're a politician and dare to bear the name of Christ. How much even more so if in the debate on abortion you speak about Christian principles and morality. If you simply go on a march for life, the hate spewed words that are thrown not only from people in the crowd, but from politicians, from the media. When you raise even this concept that seems to be so point blank, so clear, as clear as Herod's adultery. When you raise the issue, even within your families, there's a coldness. And sad to say, even within some churches, that concept of the right to life is laughed at, mocked, and to be thought we have to leave that behind if we're going to reach the masses. If we're going to fill our churches, then we can't take such bold stand on issues of morality. How much more so 
in individual and personal sin means we don't. Paul wrote in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all who are godly will come under persecution. Perhaps the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is my Christianity kept under the covers so much that nobody persecutes me? Oh, this isn't persecution for being obnoxious. This isn't persecution for being a jerk to people. This isn't persecution for being hardened. This is persecution just for the sake of Christ. To do something solely in the name of Christ. Out of a love for Christ. Out of a compassion for Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the book of Revelation, John is given two visions. In John chapter or in Revelation chapter 6, there is the picture of those who are martyrs underneath the throne. What a beautiful picture. Where are the martyrs? Underneath the throne of God. A picture of having come under God's protection. Of being there in God's presence. You know, think about it. If you're under the throne of God, how close you are to the glory and the presence of God. This is where the martyrs are. And the word martyrs there means not only those who have given their lives, but those who are faithful witnesses to the end. See, that's what this passage in Mark calls us to. To be a faithful witness to the end. In spite of that which may come. In spite of the henchman coming with his sword to put our head upon our platter. Or to jail us or to take anything away from us that we would remain faithful to the end. In Revelation chapter 20. We meet these martyrs again. Those who have been beheaded for the gospel. I cannot help but think that that picture that John is given there, that revelation, is the reminder of John the Baptist's life lost for being a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. What can separate us from the love of God? Shall persecution? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This morning, standing before you were several young men in our own cadet group. Later on, a, a whole large group of men who have been part of the cadet program. What a beautiful sight. Do you realize that in most churches in Europe this morning, we could not have even gathered that many men? 
Not that many men would even be in church. In large churches, three, four times as large as this. In many evangelical churches in our world, here in the United States, we would not find this. What a blessing, what a joy to see men and boys standing before you this morning, hearing, living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and true. This is the pathway of blessing. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Young men, someday, you too will be called forth to be a faithful witness. Oh no, not someday, today. Today you are called. Today, each one of us who stood and sung is called. Today, each one of us in this auditorium is called. Be willing to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, even if it means you are persecuted. For blessed are you. For in God's protection program, Nothing can separate you from his love. And God's people say, amen. Father, we thank you again for your living word. That speaks, Father, not only of history past, but speaks of life present. And confirms to us with great hope and assurance life to come. Thank you for the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Thank you for the life and ministry of faithful saints down through the ages who have laid down their life for their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, may we too, may we too. Oh, it may not be our death. But it may be laughter, it may be some ridicule, it may be some laughing, it may be putting out of a job. It may be not getting a promotion. It may, not, it may be not getting invited to the next party or event, even, even within our family. But Father, we are blessed. And we have the sure hope of knowing we shall be given a white robe. And serve you forever. In Christ's name. God's people say. Amen.